Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A living history production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello, I'm Battlefield Historian Matt McLaughlin, and thank you for joining me for another walk through history. It's December, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor is coming up, and so I wanted to take a close look at that because this really is one of the most important chapters of the Second World War. Japanese attack on the American base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii plunged not just America, but the entire world into the Pacific War and led to years of bloodshed in those famous Pacific battlefields. But like so many chapters of the Second World War, there's a lot of misconceptions about Pearl Harbor, the motivations, how it unfolded, and the results of that attack. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to myth bust. Pearl Harbor. And to join us to do that is historian and author Richard B. Frank, and he joins us from the US. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to uh, speak with you again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Now, I just I, I wanted to kick off. We're talking about Pearl Harbor. We're addressing some questions about Pearl Harbor, taking a new look at the attack. After more than 80 years, the first thing I wanted to ask is, is there anything new we can learn about the attack on Pearl Harbor? You know, uh, let me give you a little background. Interestingly, although I spent literally decades with the whole Asia-Pacific War, one topic I'd sort of tiptoed around was Pearl Harbor because it had become, certainly in the U.S., this fever swamp of uh, good and sturdy historians I knew went down to that swamp and came down with fevers and lost, lost the plot, as it were. And so when I finally had to deal with this extensively in the book I wrote, Tower of Skulls, it was published in March of 2020, I sort of took a whole fresh look at this uh, as to how to approach it. And one of the things that struck me immediately was that to really, uh, at the heart of the whole thing is uh, whether the attack's success was really uh, a Japanese success or an American failure. And I went by the finding of historian Gordon Prang, he said that basically it was a Japanese success. That's the primary thing. And so looking at that, you know, how do you really grapple with, how do you explain that? And to my mind, there are two fundamental aspects about this, which are either not understood at all or or really dimly understood. The Japanese did two things. One was uh, they achieved surprise and the second was they achieved deception. But when you look at these, they both are in multiple layers. Uh, surprise was, as we now talk about the uh, levels of war, it was at strategic, operational, and tactical level, not just one thing. 
And the most important was really the strategic level. And that was where Admiral uh, Isaruku uh, Yamamoto came in, the commander chief of the combined fleet, which was, of course, the main element of the Imperial Navy. And he was uh, a very uh, astute, very smart uh, individual. And he had been opposed to going to war with the U.S. In fact, he was you know, they moved him out of Tokyo where he had a, uh, an administrative position to the combined fleet to keep him from being assassinated because of his opposition. But when the order came down that Japan was going to war and he was going to have to manage the fleet, he looked at the situation and he believed uh, two things. First of all, that the Imperial Navy's longstanding plan for a short war would never work. It had never worked in a war game. You know? And secondly, he thought because of the enormous industrial disparity between the U.S. and Japan, Japan had no hope in a, in a, in a long war. So he looked around and he perceived that the, absolutely the only American vulnerability he could strike at was potentially the American will to continue the war. And focusing on that, he decided that he was going to organize his strategy around that. So the first thing he thought about was an attack on Pearl Harbor to strike at the American fleet, but also not just uh, as people commonly think, the aircraft. He was actually going after the battleships because he thought those were the great emblems of naval power. And that was the, big, the biggest psychological blow to uh, the American uh, public as well as the American Navy. And what's interesting is that when he did this, he encountered ferocious opposition within the Imperial Navy because it totally inverted this concept of a Pacific War, which actually was shared on both sides of the Pacific. Based on decades of study, going back to 1906 or so, both the Imperial Navy and the U.S. Navy decided that the, quote, correct Japanese strategy for a war was to keep the main fleet in the Western Pacific forced the U.S. Navy to trundle across the Pacific, subject to attrition from submarines and aircraft, and then to engage in this, what both sides call this decisive battle somewhere in the Western Pacific, around the Philippines, or maybe near the Marianas. And what Yamamoto was doing was he was totally inverting this whole concept. And further, uh, he uh, had several other steps, but that's the most important thing, because what he was doing was he was on both sides of the, uh, the Pacific. He was inverting the total strategic concept of how the war should be fought. So that's number one. Number two, what we call the operational phase, which is between tactical and strategic. And at this level, there were two elements to surprise. The first and one that's most commonly remarked upon is massing these six fleet carriers in one formation to deliver this tremendous blow to the Pacific fleet. Now, what was significant about this was that prior to April 1941, both the U.S. and the Japanese navies uh, had recognized the tremendous offensive striking power of uh, aircraft carriers. But the U.S. Navy and the Japanese Navy up to April 41 had thought, well, there's a there's a downside to this because the carriers have tremendous offensive power, but they are not nearly as well protected. They're not nearly as defensible as battleships are. So the solution with respect to carrier employment on both in both fleets was dispersion. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, as the saying goes, or whatever. Here. And that's what both navies did. And in April 1941, the Japanese, primarily based on their experience in China about massing air power, decided to put their six, what would prove to be their six main fleet carriers in one formation. And of course, this did give them a, a degree of offensive power that was unmatched in the world but they made no measure to increase their defensive power. And so that massing of carriers did tremendous damage for the first six months of the war. But then off this island called Midway, about six months later, having all your fleet carriers in one formation produced disaster in five minutes. You know That's why the U.S. Navy found it hard, if not impossible, to conceive that the Japanese would mass all their carriers in one formation. And the second 
uh, part of Operational Surprise was we had been studying Japanese fleet uh, maneuvers for decades, monitoring their radio transmissions and plotting where they were. And at no time had ever the Japanese Imperial Navy showed a disposition to split off any major part of the fleet and send it as far out as the Central Pacific. So that whole movement of the task force across the North Pacific, which was not well-traveled, all the way to Hawaii, once again, was a level of surprise, another element of surprise that was totally shocking. At the tactical level, which is the lowest level, the Japanese achieved two two feats, the first of which was that Pearl Harbor was much shallower than any other uh, harbor, fleet anchorage or whatever here, only about 36 feet of water. And aerial torpedoes of that era, uh, when they were dropped from the aircraft, what they would do was they dive underwater far more than 36 feet before their guidance system righted them and brought them up and moved them to the direction and the uh, and the depth that they needed to uh, achieve a hit on the target. So they had to devise uh, special devices to fit around the torpedoes to keep them from diving more than 36 feet into the water and make them work in shallow water. And they only achieved that in November 40. They literally were loading those specially modified torpedoes just before the fleet sailed, task force sailed before Pearl Harbor. The other thing that they did was they knew the Americans moored their battleships at Pearl Harbor uh, in pairs commonly. And that meant the outer battleship was vulnerable to torpedoes, but the inner one could not be reached by torpedoes. So the only way to damage it was with a bomb. Conventional bombs would not penetrate the armored deck of a, of a battleship, so they converted 16.1-inch uh, naval shells into bombs, and those were what they used to drop on uh, the ships that were not uh, outboard at Pearl Harbor. And basically, those two weapons uh, were responsible for about 60% of the American deaths at Pearl Harbor between the ships that were torpedoed and, the ship, and particularly the Arizona, which had blown up by a bomb. So th those three levels of war made it almost impossible for an intelligence organization between April and December 1941 to figure out what the Japanese were up to, even if these supposedly mythical radio signals that were picked up in the North Pacific, which really didn't happen. But even if they had happened, no one would have devised, divined from that 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 represented a major part of the Japanese fleet, massed aircraft carriers steaming towards Pearl Harbor. Now, deception, they also uh, did two levels, the first of which they wanted to conceal where the carriers were. So they imposed absolute radio silence. And the Japanese sources are absolutely adamant about that, that there was no transmission from the uh, Pearl Harbor strike force on the way over. They received messages, of course. They could always receive, but they transmitted nothing. So they concealed where the carriers were. But what they also did was they provided a plausible explanation for where they weren't. And they did this very cleverly. In those days, radio transmissions were done by radio, radio men with a hand manipulation of, of a telegraph key, what uh, radio operators called a fist. And experienced radio operators could identify the fist of other radio operators. So the Japanese took their standard radio operators on their main carriers, left them ashore conducting dummy traffic to generate the image that the carriers were still sitting in Japanese home waters. And that proved we picked that up and we were interpreting that as signs that the carriers were still in home waters. There was another element of deception that wasn't really planned. It was the fact that they were massing enormous air, sea and land forces for this great drive down into uh, in Southeast Asia, down to Singapore, Malaya, uh, Java, the Philippines. So that was a plausible explanation. The carriers were remaining to protect those task forces they were assembling for those missions. So all of these things added together made it uh, virtually impossible for anyone to pick up in that short a span of what the Japanese were really up to, or that this task force was sailing towards Pearl Harbor. And that, and that's what really gives 
I think the, the main lie to the to the notion that the, uh, there was advanced knowledge of the attack of on that was coming on Pearl Harbor, either in Washington or London or wherever. Well, let's talk about that one a little bit, Richard. I, I don't want to spend sure. too much time on it, but we have to address it because every time I do an interview about Pearl Harbor, someone asks me, but isn't it true the Americans knew about it and needed an excuse to go to war? I mean, obviously it's ridiculous, but just as a historian, where do, where does that sit with you? No, I, I, you know, there's also a term for that called the, the backdoor to war uh, that's commonly used in the U.S. And it's basically the notion that President Roosevelt uh, set up the Japanese uh, to attack uh, the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor in order to get the U.S. into the war, not only against Japan, but also against Germany. Now, one of the most basic problems with that was that even if the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, uh, did that automatically mean the U.S. is going to go into war against Germany, which was everyone, no one doubts that Roosevelt was very anxious to get the U.S. against into the war against Germany because he regarded Germany as the existential threat to the U.S. and democracy and the whole world order. Uh, the idea that uh, somehow we knew for sure the Germans were going to uh, join the war if the Japanese attacked, well, the only thing we had, we had one intercepted diplomatic message reporting uh, by the uh, Japanese uh, foreign minister uh, saying that, you know, Hitler was was uh, saying that if Japan attacked the U.S., Germany would enter the war. Well, here you have a secondhand hearsay of what the Fuhrer said with no written agreement. And you, you know, you base your strategy on the notion that that evidence proves that Adolf Hitler, famous for violating agreements, was certainly going to go to war against the U.S. and add the U.S. to his enemies as he's struggling with the Soviet Union. I mean, at one level, it makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, and Roosevelt, interestingly, on the evening of 7 December, when he's already drafting the speech he's going to give the next day with the famous uh, Day of Infamy speech, he has a cabinet meeting. And two of the cabinet members in particular, Secretary of State Cordell Hall and Secretary of the Army uh, Henry Stimson, both are uh, adamantly wanting him to add Germany uh, to his request for a declaration of war. And Roosevelt flatly turns them down uh, because he does not believe there's public support for that absent something else. So he bides his time. And of course, Hitler, in one of the great mistakes he made in his life, maybe the greatest in some respects, he decides uh, to declare war on the U.S. and have the U.S. joining the Brits and the Russians against him. It's just insane. You mentioned, Richard, this concept of, of hitting America in the only spot where it was weak, which was the public's will to fight. Looking at that in context of the attack on Pearl Harbor, I mean, we know in hindsight how it galvanized the whole country to go to war. Did right. that aspect of the Japanese plan have any chance of success? Is there an alternative universe where Japan could have, through the attack on Pearl Harbor, convinced the US not to go to war? No, I, I don't think so. There, there are multiple levels to this. Uh, to really to spool it back further, which a part that gets lost is the American public was is famously called isolation. I call them non-interventionists based on their experience in World War One. They thought the war had been fought and it had not achieved the the peace, enduring peace that had been promised to them by President Wilson. Uh, that was uh, one of the principles. And I should e emphasize that the opposition to getting into another war was very broad-based. It was not just the Republicans in the Midwest or whatever here. There was powerful Democratic voices that believed the same thing. Uh, John L. Lewis, a major labor leader, was a fervent uh, 
advocate of non-intervention, and several others or whatever here. They, these people, uh, you know, were not keen on that. But um, conversely, however, almost all Americans uh, had been watching what had gone on in China. They were watching these horrific images, both still in motion picture and print accounts, of these horrible Japanese atrocities against the Chinese people. So before Pearl Harbor even happened, the American public was in extremely high uh, anger over Japan. There was a uh, Gallup poll in February 1940 that uh, asked the American public, you know, who do you favor in this war between Japan and China? And 2% of the public said they favored Japan and 77% favored China. Some of the people who are usually damned as uh, isolationists were actually talking very aggressive steps against Japan that would possibly have broke war because people were so upset about what was going on. So this further uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, I would describe it as like, it was like throwing a, a, a massive uh, tank of gasoline on a roaring fire. I mean, it just incited uh, American public anger to a degree. Conversely, looking at it another way, I think to understand Yamamoto, you have to understand he didn't think whatever strategy he was devising had a high probability of success. He was only arguing that he thought this was the only possible strategy that might do. And he was looking at not only the attack on Pearl Harbor, but also following it up with a series of blows that would, you know, one after another that he thought might uh, rock American opinion. And the final blow, by the way, that he was planning, his masterstroke along this strategy was, the Battle of Midway was to see supremacy, but to follow it up, he intended to have Japan stage an invasion of the Hawaiian Islands, seize the Hawaiian Islands. He then have about four, over 400,000 American citizens to hold this effectively bargaining chips to try to negotiate around that. I mean, that's that's how far he went with his, his strategy. And of course, the failure at Midway then negated the attack on Pearl Harbor. But prior to that, he got the Imperial Army aboard training two divisions to attack Hawaii after Midway. I mean, this was very serious uh, strategy that uh, Yamamoto had, had was pursuing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Several years ago, I was at a conference here in Australia and I heard you speak about the Pacific War and there was a question and answer session and someone stood up and said, Richard, in your opinion, at what point did Japan lose the Second World War? And your answer was they lost the Second World War the moment the first torpedo was released from the <laughs> from the first aircraft on December the 7th, 1941. I mean, let's talk about that. Do you think that was the case, that from the moment this attack at Pearl Harbor occurred, Japan was in a no-win situation? 
I think in the, in the you know with the advantage of the perspective we have now, that's how I felt that. I would say, however, uh, that one of the problems we have as World War II historians was, if you really look at the record of the anti-Axis forces from uh, October 1935 when Italy uh, seizes Ethiopia, and you went all the way into the summer of 1942. Uh, the Axis forces, uh, particularly Germany and, of course, Japan, and that big run after December 41, are victorious on almost all occasions, frequently humiliating defeats, both military or, or diplomatic to the Allied powers. Uh, uh, it's just reeling. Uh, one of the things uh, I've always thought was very insightful was Richard Overy's uh, How the uh, Allies Won. And he has a passage, and he says, in the spring of 1942, if you knew, if you were in the West, the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia, for that matter, and you knew only what was being reported in the media over here, you'd had very difficult time projecting how that war would have ended up to that point. And one further thing I found recently, actually, I've been reading the New York Times day by day through the war. It's a very interesting perspective. You see it coming at you both nationally and internationally. And the New York Times actually was sort of the template for a large part of American media coverage during the war. And what I found that really shocked me, uh, we've known for a long time that, uh, that Churchill had to, had to face two votes of no confidence in Parliament in 1942, first essentially over Singapore, and, and the second was really came up uh, after the surrender at Tobruk, whatever here, in uh, June, July 1942. What I didn't realize was that in the 25th, on the 25th of June 1942, the New York Times in its lead editorial essentially called for President Roosevelt to turn over direction of the war to a uniformed officer or group of officers to basically uh, direct the war. You know, like, Mr. Roosevelt, you know, this is this is too much. You've got too much to manage. Let the military and the Navy run the war. You step aside. And then on the day the American forces landed on Guadalcanal on uh, the 7th of August, which was before news of that reached the U.S., the New York Times carried a a story that uh, Gallup poll had just shown that 64% of the American people said that Roosevelt and Churchill should not be making military decisions. I mean, that's how how low uh, people were feeling at that time about the direction of the war. So, um, you know, people were really, uh, you know, feeling uh, and making making their displeasure known about how the war was going. Do you think as historians we've been colored by the you know the last half of the second world war obviously once it turned in the direction of the allies and the the results seemed inevitable but just to expand on that point that you you were making there do you think that when we look back on the second world war now we're affected by how successful we we ended up being and we we tend to overlook those uh, those early days of the war That's that's exactly right now what I sometimes say is that it's extremely difficult looking back decades later over the charred rubble of Berlin and Tokyo and believing how perilous the situation seemed to be through the summer of 1942. Uh, you know, and when the, when the Stalingrad campaign started, uh, even though the Soviets had held out in December 41, uh, at first the Germans were once again back on the road. They, 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 and they were doing the same things they'd done in 1941, crushing these, uh, Russian army, so they're not taking as many prisoners and driving all the way to Stalingrad. You know, for quite a while it looked like Stalingrad was going to fall. Uh, so the situation was, you know, uh, very dim. It, one of the other remarkable things about the 
war. You know, Churchill famously in one of his volumes of his history said, talked about 1942 as the hinge of fate. Well, you can really, if you really break it down, there's this incredible run of only 16 days. On the 3rd of November, the British finally secure a, a complete victory at Alamein. On the 8th of November, the British and the Americans land torch on North Africa. On the 14th and 15th of November, the U.S. Navy finally, in the last phase of this naval battle at Guadalcanal, secures what proves to be the decisive battle at, at Guadalcanal. And on the 19th of December, the Soviets launch their Stalingrad uh, counteroffensive. So in 16 days, there's this stupendous swing of fortune literally all around the globe. I once uh, spoke to a German veteran. A, a good friend of mine was a veteran who'd served from, he enlisted in 1940 and served with the, with the Germans throughout the entire war. And I was just asking him about his reminiscences, reminiscences about the early part of the war. And it was a fascinating perspective. He backs up what you're saying. He said, up until Stalingrad, we felt in Germany that we'd won the war. We felt that we captured Western Europe. The Russians were on the run. Uh, the Brits obviously weren't keen to keep fighting, so we just had to negotiate some sort of peace with the British. And America right. probably wouldn't get involved in any too great a level. And so we right. used to walk around the streets of Berlin talking about, well, it was a bitter war, but we won. And finally, Europe is <laughs> as it should be. And obviously, obviously, everything turned around very quickly after Stalingrad. But I think that was a fascinating insight into exactly what you're saying, that in the early parts of the war, it was it was Axis victory one after the other. Yeah, and, and really, uh, one of the things you have to keep in mind, it frequently appears that Japanese uh, military and political leadership was, well, it's very dysfunctional to begin with, as I get into in my book. But, but more than that, uh, if you simply try to look at things the way they were seeing it, I mean, after Germany achieved that stunning victory in Western Europe in 1940, Germany looked like the new military colossus uh, that would be triumphant no matter what, what the odds were. And from the Japanese perspective, you know, they sort of signed up on the winning team, you know, by, by becoming part of the Axis Pact. And in 1942, uh, in 1941, I mean, they expected the Jap uh, the Germans to knock the Soviets out of the war. And then they expected them to turn and knock the Brit British out of the war, at which point they thought the U.S. would be deterred from entering the war. Well, into 1942, they thought, well, there's still a chance that this is how it's all going to come out. So the Japanese were not, if you only understood what you what people understood at that time, they were not totally irrational in their belief that, you know, we've signed up with, we're on the winning team, you know. And then what your German veteran was saying was, you know, very much sort of attitude about the Japanese leadership is that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to win, you know, and the Germans are going to carry the heaviest load. Before this uh, interview, we were talking about various aspects of Pearl Harbor that we wanted to reassess from a historic point of view. And one that I thought was fascinating that you brought up was, uh, well, you touched on it there when you were talking about was Pearl Harbor a Japanese success or an American failure? And it, it certainly seems from looking back through the, uh, through the pages of history that there was a real, uh, the blame for Pearl Harbor seemed to land squarely on the commanders in Hawaii. Do you think that's a fair assessment of where things went wrong for the Americans? No, you know, it's, uh, and, and but you really have to be uh, very careful about going through the attitudes in Washington at that time. Uh, they were, uh, made a decision in mid-1941, July, to strongly reinforce the Philippines uh, with both ground forces and air force, particularly air forces, and with the idea of this would enhance deterrence. Uh, and so they rushed aircraft out there. In fact, 
the best aircraft out there in the Pacific. They put uh, all the B-17s uh, that were high quality, 35 of those, and the and the best fighters. There was uh, the standard fighter at that time was a P-40. The latest model was the E model, and that was what they were putting out in uh, the Philippines. Hawaii had the B and C models, which were earlier models uh, that, for their air forces. And at one point, they ordered uh, uh, or uh, tried to get uh, General uh, Walter Short, the commander of the Hawaii Department. They told him they wanted him to send uh, effectively half his defensive fighters to uh, be stationed on the islands of Wake and Midway, which were stepping stones for B-17s being flown out to the Philippines. Uh, which had an obviously extremely powerful message that they didn't think Hawaii was in any danger of any attack or whatever here. Uh, the other thing is that the uh, when in late November, there were clear signs the Japanese were on the move, and this was mainly picking up what the Japanese were preparing in the Far East, that all those forces massing go down to Southeast Asia. And they sent what, what are called these war warning messages to the Pacific. But if you read those messages carefully, they they talk about uh, potential targets uh, in the Philippines or uh, Wake or Guam or things like that. Not one of them mentions Hawaii as a potential target. They say the Japanese are on the move. They might strike and here, here, here. They list these places. Nobody lists Hawaii whatsoever. And the, the really the, the greatest fault, I think, in Washington is this. When they send that forewarning message to General Short, who's commander of the Hawaiian Department, he commands both the ground forces and the air forces. And so when he receives that message, he sends a short message uh, back uh, right after receiving it, saying he's preparing his command against sabotage and subversion, right? Not against general attack. And then he sends a second message that elaborates on this and says, we are now uh, raising the alert to level one, under the standing operating procedure of 5 November 1941 of the Hawaiian Department. Okay, what does this gobbledygook actually mean? Well, what what actually happens is this. The standard operating procedure that had been in effect before 5 November 1941 had three levels of alert, uh, but number one was the highest and number three was the lowest. Well, short staff, for whatever reason, changed the SOP They kept the three levels, but they made it so that number three was the highest and number one was the lowest. And they send this message to Washington and the people in the War Plans Division, who one or more of them should have been familiar with this and realized that all Short was doing was in raising his alert status just against sabotage, which is famously why he parked those planes wingtip to wingtip to guard them against sabotage. So Washington was told that he was only getting ready against sabotage, you know, and they did nothing. It went all the way up to General Marshall, but you, you couldn't expect Marshall, the chief of staff of the army, to know the fine detail about what this SOP was. The That's what the staff of the war plans, that's what they were supposed to do. Uh, so you, you had, had that going on. So the army really blew it. And the other thing is there was an inter-service agreement in 1936 about roles and missions. And then under that agreement, when the fleet was in the port, the primary responsibility for its defense was with the army, not the navy. Over here, so by rights, you know, we talk about, you know, shouldn't have General MacArthur have been relieved for getting his planes caught on the ground in the Philippines? Blah blah blah. Well, you know, 
if you understand that the army bore principal responsibility for protecting the fleet and the army totally blew it, you know, not only should Short have gone, but what about chief of staff of the army who basically took no measure to correct the erroneous belief of Short that, you know, sab- being alert against sabotage was, was, was enough. Now, that said, there's one thing where Short, where General Short and the commander of the Pacific Fleet, husband Kimmel, they have a responsibility which I don't think can be absolved under any basis. And that's that uh, whatever the shortcomings about what they were provided were, they were given some radar sets and they were operating on those radar sets. One of the radar sets, in fact, detected the incoming flight. There were three tactical warnings uh, um, that morning. Uh, and to make those war- those radar detection effective, you need to have an air, what we call an air control center to you know, monitor the input from the radar, determine the air situation, and determine that those were hostile aircraft. But to do that, you needed to have one center, and you'd be staffed by both Army and Navy officers who were familiar with the operations of both Army and Navy aircraft, so you could rule out, you know, what the strike was. Well, they never set one up. Uh, There was no air control center. And what's more, because of shorts, total misconception of what was on, going on. He let the radar sets operate from 0400 to 0700 in the morning, primarily for training, but he totally disconnected uh, the operation of that radar set from any practical effect for defense because he reduced the level of alert of the defensive fighter planes to basically, you know, the planes are parked and guarded. They're not ready to take off, which they had been literally for months before November uh, 1941. So it's just... Total failure by Short and Kimmel on that. And that's one that there's no way of uh, moving this responsibility to Washington. Well, Richard, it's a fascinating topic. And I think, uh, you know, the, the more more information is coming out all the time, thanks to excellent research by historians such as yourself and many other people. And I think it's really important that we keep asking these questions and keep looking at it. Just just from your perspective, um, is that a you know is that a priority that we keep looking in, into these chapters that we think we know the story of and, and finding new angles on them? Well, that, not only from a historical standpoint, but you know the uh, the the effects of the Pearl Harbor attack uh, are literally with us today. The Central Intelligence Agency exists uh, primarily because of what were deemed to be failures of intelligence, and the CIA was supposed to be the outfit that was going to warn us against the next, quote, the next Pearl Harbor, unquote. Well, you can kind of look over the record of the Korean War and several other events and say that maybe the CIA didn't quite do what they were supposed to do. But that's part of it. And the other thing, just quickly, one of the most interesting things I have found is that uh, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, immediately after the attack, uh, believed that one lesson that was learned was we were making a hash out of this very valuable radio intelligence, which at that point was overwhelmingly diplomatic intelligence. And the way it was being handled, because we had no institutional background or experience in this, it was being handled very uh, amateurishly. Essentially what happened was you had an army officer, and Navy officer would look over the diplomatic intercepts. They would decide whether some of them might be of interest to senior policymakers. They would take basically the, the raw intercept, and these were distributed to the senior policymakers to look at uh, on one day. And then they had the next day, the courier would come in, would take back the, the, the messages from the day before and give them the new set of messages. So every policymaker was effectively acting as his own intelligence officer. 
and was supposed to keep in his head what was going on because you couldn't keep any notes on this because of the security level. And that's why Stimson decided to go to this system, which now is effectively it's what we're with now. We have what we call the President's Daily Brief, which actually goes to more than he and some other things. Very similar. They're like newsletters that try to put intelligence into some sort of context. So you can put it together with whatever information. You have. And that's another direct result of the Pearl Harbor attack. Well, Richard, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor to discuss these new interpretations. It's wonderful work you're doing. Your book, Tower of Skulls, I'm, I'm in the middle of it at the moment. It's a, it's a fantastic read. Like uh, like all your previous books, it, uh, it really is something special. So I'd encourage, encourage everyone to go out and read that. And uh, just thank you so much for your time. We're looking forward to having you back on the, uh, on the show again. I'd be pleased to be here. And thank you, Matt, once again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.